This is the 966, the podcast that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia from the two guys who produce the most widely read daily newsletter on the kingdom, episode 12, Richard. Um, This week we'll be talking about what will happen with oil in 2022, redefining citizenship in Saudi Arabia, and two major new announcements from the kingdom. But before we get started this week, a special shukran to all those who have smashed that subscribe button on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And especially for those of you who have given us a review, thank you, Shukran. Also, comments and feedback, ideas, whatever you got, shoot them our way. We love hearing the feedback and and uh, everything from listeners and viewers so far. You can get in touch with us at the966podcast at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at 966podcast. Or if you have any negative feedback, obviously, write to Richard. Just cut me right out of it. Um, we also want to know before we get started, occasionally we might misspeak or say something that is incorrect. It's going to be very rare, but we strive for perfection here, of course. So, uh, look in the comment section of the podcast or on YouTube. Um, we may post a correction, uh, to what we say there. So just check that out. Um, let's get to it, Richard. We we can't afford to be just pure on that. I'm, you know, there's, we'll misspeak and misstate and every now and then. So we'll try for big gaffes. For big Super gaffes. gaffes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Well, I originally was thinking about uh, this, these artificial intelligent robots in the Grand Mosque in, in Mecca, which is pretty cool. Of course, we like this technology. You know, anything with a 21-inch touchscreen is attractive to us. <laughs> but um, I'm going with uh, uh, USGC, USGCC Iran working group statement. And let me just read parts of it. Mm-hmm. Senior officials of the United States and the members of the GCC uh, Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC, convened their working group on Iran at the GCC's headquarters in Riyadh on November 17th, as decided by the U.S. GCC Foreign Ministerial on September 23rd. The U.S. and GCC member states condemned a range of aggressive and dangerous Iranian policies, including the proliferation and direct use of advanced ballistic missiles and unmanned aircraft systems. The U.S. and GCC member states agreed that Iran's nuclear program is of grave concern and also called for Iran to fully cooperate with the International Atomic Energy Agency. The U.S. and GCC member states discussed a wide range of regional issues, including the situation in Iraq and Yemen, agreed that Iran's support to armed militias across the region and its ballistic missile program posed a clear threat to regional security and stability. They further agreed to hold subsequent meetings of this working group to discuss these and other issues, uh, within its terms of reference adopted in its inaugural meeting on uh, uh, earlier on 3 November 2015. Uh, the USG, uh, U.S. and GCC member states affirmed that Iran has a better alternative to these continued escalations and contribute to a more secure and stable region. Members of the GCC briefed on their efforts to build effective diplomatic channels with Iran to prevent, resolve, resolve or de-escalate conflicts backed by strong deterrence and defense cooperation with the United States. They described a vision for these regional diplomatic efforts developing over time to promote peaceful ties in the region based on a long history of economic and cultural exchanges. The U.S. and the members of the GCC affirmed that deeper economic ties after the lifting of U.S. sanctions under the JCPOA are in the mutual interest of the region. Um, this is interesting. One of, one of our early podcasts was about U.S.-Saudi relations, and we talked about how they might change under President Biden. And uh, we, were, we are aware that uh, the Saudis in particular weren't particularly fond of Barack Obama, um, in large part 
because this uh, the JCPOA that was negotiated with Iran was done without uh, any uh, forenotice or consultation with uh, our Gulf allies. One of the things that we talked about in that earlier podcast about the difference between you know the, the, what the Biden administration might bring was uh, a greater emphasis on process and transparency. And this is an example of that. Uh, this GCC working group, uh, you know, was was set up in, in 2015, really was dormant, but it's been it's been reinvigorated and is now uh, a framework to consult with and form uh, our allies, key allies in the region. And this this certainly was not uh, it was not in evidence uh, under President Obama and certainly was not around under President Trump. So it's a it's a new means of business and i think it's a better means of business and i think it will be um uh attractive to our allies in the region and uh it, this also came out i just part and parcel of this the special envoy for iran robert malley was in the emirates Qatar, and saudi arabia in, in mid-october again consulting with our allies in the region about what the u.s is thinking of doing with iran or hopes to do with iran that's just good diplomacy mm-hmm. and so kudos to the biden administration yeah, the statement also sort of calls attention to the fact that the iron is hot in terms of trying to make some advances with uh, diplomatic advances with Iran. Um, they've just had their elections. Um, the statement says, I don't have it right in front of me, but it says something like we this we call on Iran to seize the diplomatic moment right now, um, take advantage of the fact that there there's a chance to make some progress here. Um, so that yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, yeah. I think uh, you mentioned the GCC, uh, the body was set up in 2015. I think, uh, didn't Barack Obama, President Obama visit Saudi Arabia in 2015 and, and for the inaugural or the uh, the first meeting? Uh, I don't, he may have, he may have. I think you know, I just, I only say that because I saw a bunch of photos of him um, on our website, sustg.com of uh, <laughs> just all those meetings. And that was sort of the, before the uh, Cutter Rift, so it was an interesting collection of photographs. Uh, that the GCC HQ is just outside of Riyadh is a really cool building. It is a cool building. My one big thing this week um, is Saudi Saudi Airlines. They might be spending big money in the coming years. Uh, Saudi uh, is potentially targeting an aircraft order from Airbus, Airbus, or Boeing <laughs> that could total well above one hundred jets and uh as part of a push to lure more tourists bloomberg reported this news um this is coming out of the dubai air show which concludes today the carrier is targeting a fleet of 250 aircraft by 2030 which would mean adding around 100 um, while renewing a significant chunk of an existing 150 plane fleet uh this is according to saudi ceo ibrahim koshi most of the requirement is for twin aisle planes also known like me after Thanksgiving dinner, wide body planes, though options for Airbus narrow bodies could be converted to firm orders, the report added. Um, I know aircraft manufacturers and airline operators negotiate a discount for planes and deals like this for big purchases, but this would be a massive spend from Saudi. Um, and right now there's a lot of potential energy in the aviation space in Saudi Arabia. You have this announcement, the potential for a new airline to compete with Qatar and Emirates, which was mentioned, but we haven't heard a lot about recently. Um, a potential major overhaul to Riyadh's airport in the works. Jeddah's airport just recently finished its major facelift, transforming an airport previously considered one of the worst in the world to a modern hub. Um, 
In 2020, Saudi Arabia was set to have the second Saudi air show, but was canceled due to the pandemic. Organizers of that event said another event would be announced in 2021, but none has been made. Richard, I just think this is interesting because this is like a, I mean, if you're an executive at Airbus or Boeing, you're, you paid attention to the statement from the Saudi CEO. Absolutely. And I'd like to see Boeing's coming out of a very dark period. And it'd be great if they can uh, start ramping up and, and, and regaining and accelerating sales. We did an earlier uh, discussion of this on Boeing's commercial market outlook for 2021 to 2040. So their 20 year forecast. And they're looking at, at, that, at that outlook. Uh, we're looking at the Middle East requiring 3,000 new airplanes valued at 700 billion and aftermarket services um, in terms of maintenance repair worth another 740 billion. So about 1.5 trillion over the next 20 years. Obviously, some of that's in Saudi Arabia with Saudia. And, and hopefully Boeing, you know, I, I'm a homer. I hope Boeing gets it all. Yeah, uh, you can find that segment, by the way, on our YouTube channel or um, our podcast website, 966.transistor.fm. Very interesting discussion um, on Boeing's pro uh, outlook, which was great. Um, yeah, I'm a homer too. I'm hoping that uh, I'm ho hoping that Boeing gets it, and or at least many of them. And, and uh, yeah, this benefits the United States for sure over France. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's move to topic one. What will happen with oil in 2022? The IEA on Tuesday upped its average Brent crude oil price assumption for 2022 to $79.40 a barrel. Brent is expected to average $71.50 a barrel this year. Richard, we've talked a lot about oil on the 966 for obvious reasons, but the IEA doesn't talk about oil prices very much. As Reuters notes, this is a rarely published take on prices. The IEA told Reuters that uh, including price assumptions in monthly reports is rare, but not unprecedented. But this report is interesting. Um, Richard, let's talk about oil in 2022, excuse me, 2022. Uh, yeah, this is exciting news, I, you know, and, and it, it sort of affirms what we're seeing. But let's, let's talk about oil, actually. Let's talk about oil prices. And because I think a lot of what we for refer to or, or allude to in our discussions, we sort of assuming an understanding of, of oil markets. And that's not necessarily fair. I mean, I talk a lot about November 2014 as, as um, a pivotal point for Saudi Arabia going forward. So, so let's talk about the oil prices. So let's, I'm going to go back roughly 10 years. So uh, in 2010, the, the average OPEC basket price, so the price of oil that they were selling as OPEC. So in 2010, I'm, I'm going to leave out the decimals. In, in 2010, it was $107 for the year. 2011, $109 for the year. 2012, $105 for the year. 2013, $96 for the year. So that's basically four years at, at oil prices above $100. 2014, $49. 2015, $40. 2016, $52. 2017, 69, 2018, 64, 2019, 41, 2020, 69. And, and that's OPEC's basket price. So when you look at this, and this is why 2014 is so pivotal, they're just coming off of basically 100 or more than 100 average price of oil for four years running. Um, price started to plummet and we know why we talked about this because of the, the excuse explosion uh, of US shale production. So 
basically in 2014 and 2015, Saudi oil revenues were halved. And by the way, and this is the genesis of Vision 2030. You know, those two years when they didn't even know what their budget was going to be and if they could if they could continue sustain any kind of spending level that would be sufficient for their population is when it, came, it became very real and they, they moved very aggressively into Vision 2030, which was announced in 2016. So what drives these oil prices, in my opinion? <laughs> you know, we have Russ Naft, I think, just came out and said, you know, there could be $120 oil next year. Uh, Bank of America this summer said, we're going to break a hundred. Um, I'm not a believer in that. I don't think we'll see a hundred again. Why? Um, because of U.S. shale. Uh, and let's look at some of the numbers. Um, U.S. shale, why, why and, and by the way, the, the price, I think one of the reasons we're not going to see a hundred this year, I mean, in 2022, is that U.S. shale is coming back online. Um, let me get a quote here. Uh, mm -hmm. The Permian, which is in Texas, is, is the primary driver of U.S. output at the moment. And during uh, 2020, output from U.S. total oil output dropped by more than 2 million barrels a day. This was you know, due to coronavirus, and, and, and production is gradually returning. And the Permian just had the biggest month uh, and of growth uh, that it's had since I think it's since 2014. Um, so it's coming back strong and the rest of the other, other fields in the U.S. will come, on, come back too. And driven, of course, by price. Now, one, the reason that this is the case is uh, the Dallas Fed did a very interesting uh, study in 2019 where they found that uh, the oil price that U.S. shale companies need to profitably drill new wells has closely tracked prices for long-dated oil futures since 2014. 2014, remember that pivotal year. The close tracking of the two numbers suggested that the U.S. was seen as the world's marginal producer when it comes to meeting future oil demand. That connection is held through 2020 and this year, despite moments of turbulence in the spot oil market and decline in U.S. rigs. So what it's saying is, is what I've always said, and, and other people have said, that Saudi can, Saudi can set the floor on, OPEC can set the floor on oil price. U.S. shale sets the ceiling. So we're now, we've had a great year this year in terms of oil, if you're looking at oil producers, projected to be a better year next year. Uh, but, you know, you, we're waking up U.S. shale. And, and that means, as it says, they're, they're the ones who determine the ceilings. And if the you know the the markets in terms of oil futures are are sinking off of U.S. shale prices, then you know the markets will do the same in 2022. So uh, this is great, and this is you know for the Saudis, all right, let's make hay while the sun's shining, and they should. But it's I don't see it getting to 100. Uh, it, it, this is one reason why Vision 2030 and so much of, of Saudi Arabia's greater fiscal responsibility is so important because they understood their revenues aren't going to, oil revenues aren't going to, we're not going to have four years of a hundred year, hundred dollar oil ever again, probably. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have to reduce our costs and we have to find uh, non-oil revenue. And they've done that. 
you know, as we've seen in their VAT and their other uh, taxes, that they, they're going to bring in $85 billion in non-oil revenue in 2021. They brought in 85 in 2020. They'll probably bring in that or a little more in 2021. Uh, so they're moving based on these oil prices. So, you know, the premise was the oil price uh, as IEA has put out. And we can see that oil prices have driven so much of Saudi policy and specifically the, the move into Vision 2030. This report is interesting. It has a lot of like interesting facts in it. Um, like, for example, U.S. output made up for half the increase in global oil production last month. Um, but right. the IEA doesn't see U.S. production getting to pre-pandemic levels until the end of next year. It's just right. there's a lot of this. It's really interesting. And obviously what's driving it. I, I love the, the phrase Saudis at the floor. Shale sets the ceiling because shale is more expensive and not as easy to uh, extract oil from from the ground, whereas the Saudis and others have it not sitting on the ground. But it's a lot. I mean, their cost to produce per barrel is much cheaper than shale. They just have that advantage. Exactly. But but the thing that shale has done, I mean, in, in 2014, uh, the average breakeven price for U.S. oil producers was, you know, somewhere around 75 in terms of WTI. Mm -hmm. uh, by 2020, it's about 47. So the, the technology um, that, that, that they brought to bear on extraction has been uh, really transformative. Now, I will say that it's gone up. The break-even oil prices for U.S. shale producers has gone up over the last year. It's at 57 now. Um, but, you know, when, when you have, a, when you have a, a access to production in which new wells cost about $7 million to drill, um, and in fact, you know, for, for many uh, U.S. tight oil, shale oil producers, they have um, they have sitting there what's called um, let me find the term uh, drilled but uncompleted wells. So they have a lot of these sitting there. So a lot of they when 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 investors in in, in Saudi oil, I mean U.S. shale oil companies said, okay, we've been pumping cash into this as you expand. We now want dividends and buybacks. So reduce your capital expenses and uh, give us more money back, which is, again, one reason why they're on the sideline, as well as the pandemic. Well, when, when, when oil is at, at 70 plus dollars per barrel, they're coming off the sidelines and they're coming off pretty cheaply and pretty quickly, quickly. And that's why they set the ceiling. And that's why the market says, this is our marginal you know, producer is US shale oil. Yeah, it's interesting that it, oil prices also have so much politically tied to them. I mean, like right now, just the discussion about like gas being very expensive in the US is going head first into the discussion about how we need to speed up the energy transition away from oil. And right now, a lot of it's falling on the lap of President Biden. Um, some are calling for him to tap the strategic reserve, which probably won't do much in terms of alleviating prices or inflation at all. Uh, but it's just it's really interesting. This is a very political issue. As you know. And, you know, but they just did a they just did uh, um, an auction for uh, plots in the Gulf of Mexico just recently. And it was very busy and very attractive, in part because I think in future ones, uh, there's going to be higher taxes and more restrictions. 
So they got a good turnout for for uh, welling pots in in the Gulf of Mexico. And in part, those are apparently deep water wells are less carbon, fewer carbon emissions. So they're attractive in that sense. But yeah, we've got to, you know, the the world has got a challenge uh, to, you know, mitigate uh, carbon emissions while fueling the planet. So we'll we'll see how we thread this needle. Yeah, deep water platforms may emit less, but occasionally uh, yeah. accident happens and a bunch of oil yes. starts spilling into the uh, into the yeah. water. So you have a different type of group after you when that happens. Um, just yeah. fascinating subject. If only we were smart enough, Richard, to buy a bunch of oil when the WTI was at negative territory at the beginning of the pandemic after uh, the Russian Saudi oil spat, we would be rich. We would be rich. But then, you know, I've, I've been stupid on Amazon, I've been stupid on Bitcoin. Uh, you know, apparently I can't get past my idiocy in any kind of investment. We should just do the opposite of our investment inclination. And I think that might actually make us money. Who knows? <laughs> we, we should do the George Costanza. In life. <laughs> it's the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to topic two, Saudi Arabia grants citizenship to a group of talented expats. Uh, Richard, Saudi Arabia is, at least for a few people, redefining citizenship. A royal decree issued last Thursday grants citizenship to quote, experts and exceptional global talents, um, I assume we're among those, uh, who will contribute to the growth of the kingdom, according to the news carried by the state news agency, the Saudi press agency. Um, the naturalization program will seek out individuals in Islamic scholarship, medicine, science, culture, sports, technology, with a view to creating a, quote, attractive environment to cultivate and retain exceptional talent to help achieve Vision 2030 and its goals. Um, Richard, you have you spent time growing up in Saudi Arabia. You have been following the kingdom for as long as you've lived, pretty much. Um, <laughs> citizenship in Saudi Arabia isn't something that has changed much over time, despite all the changes going on there now. No. Well, identity has changed. We've talked about that. Identity is evolving. And, and we know that, um, you know, the... Uh, the kingdom started under Prince Abdullah, but also obviously with King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman, there's a, there's a move to try and promote a national identity versus a, a tribal or, or a religious identity mm. and not necessarily to supplant it, but to uh, augment it. Um, and so, so that's, that's an identity citizenship. This is sort of, you know, this is sort of the boutique citizenship that, that other countries have started. Qatar did it initially in 2018. Singapore has done it. UAE has done it, um, so so they're they're you know moving along this line. Uh, Saudi Arabia, as ever, has a little twist on it, and I think it's interesting because the first the first beneficiaries so there's 27 that these were awarded to, and there's a whole list, and you know you have you have you know luminaries in law, medicine, science, technology, cultural, sports, that sort of thing, but you know unlike Qatar uh, UAE, about a quarter of these 27 new citizens are Sunni and Shiite religious leaders, um, some of whom don't live in Saudi Arabia. And, and this is interesting because I think Prince Mohammed bin Salman is, is trying to convey a transition to a more moderate view of Islam, because all these 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 scholars, and again Sunni and Shia, um, were 
except for one, we're signatories of the 2020 Mecca Declaration that called for cultural and religious tolerance uh, and understanding. Uh, and, and so this was from the Muslim World League, which I gather the Muslim World League uh, is a vessel, a vehicle that uh, Prince Mohammed has paid a lot of attention to in trying to uh, redirect its message to a more religious, uh, uh, religiously tolerant uh, message and, and promoting an interfaith dialogue. So, so again, Saudi Arabia is doing what Qatar and UAE and Singapore and others have done, but with a nod to the realities that it's, you know, the seat of the um, uh, um, uh, Islamic holy sites and it's a, a world leader in the, in the, in the, in the world of Islam and uh, Islamic countries throughout the world. So, so it's speaking to a specific audience with these awards and the people that they named, uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, again, this is sort of boutique citizenship. It's not the kind of citizenship that, you know, occurs, uh, you know, if you've been 30 years working in Saudi Arabia and, and you know, have raised your family there where you might have access to citizenship and may, you know, someday that might come. All these countries that uh, have a, a very strong national identity, it's a difficult thing. It's not like, it's not like uh, the United States is just always sort of seen as an immigrant country and a polyglot and all are welcome. Well, not so much, you know, recently, but historically, that's been the habit. Some of these aren't habits for for Saudi Arabia or or the GCC, other GCC countries that have done it. But it's an interesting step, and it's a nod to the fact that they need to always have to continue to diversify their their talent base and and um, and you know the the human capital that they attract to the country. Yeah, it's like we were talking about before the the show today. This sort of seems like. There aren't a lot of people affected by this yet, so it's, it's it's an interesting story, but it's not very impactful to somebody who's been working in Saudi Arabia for you know years or decades and and feels like Saudi Arabia is their home now and would like to become a citizen. It's sort of this is sort of like being knighted, uh, like we were talking about. I mean, it's sort of <laughs> yeah, like it it's sort of like hey, these people are you know really important and significant, and we you know they're they're Saudis, but. I thought this was interesting, too, because um, one thing that sticks out to me in the Saudis that uh, many Saudis that I know or, and have met and the same, I'm sure, with you is that they they're very proud to be Saudis. They're very, like, very proud of their heritage. They they take great pride in it and they consider it culturally significant, not better than others, but just very important to them. And I think that's one reason why, um, you know, there, there will always be sort of a you know, excitement um, for Saudis about being a Saudi and, and being able to understand other Saudis as families, you know, based on how far they go back. And, and um, you know, it just it, it's an interesting sort of it's an interesting story. This is interesting story direction. It's not really impactful yet. Um, but Saudi did grant citizenship first to a robot before any non-Saudi. So <laughs> yes. that, that... A, woman ro a woman robot who was uh, uncovered. So, you know, maybe, <laughs> these are subtle signals. And that's what I mean, sort of, you know, when when the quarter of these are, are religious scholars, you know, they're trying to send a message. We, we'd like to promote a more moderate uh, Islam. And, uh, you know, you, it's funny you talked about Saudis and Americans are similar in a lot of ways. Americans think we're we have a destiny. Many Americans think we have a destiny. Saudis feel the same way about their country. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, to your point, 
there is a lot of pride and there is a sense that they, it's special and and uh, has a has a significant role to play. Yeah, well, Americans are special, <laughs> so <laughs> it's true. Uh, but it, it's you know, just... it's funny. It's funny, and this is an aside. Um, there's always been uh, historically, and, and people have commented on. It, there's a, a natural affinity uh, of Saudis have for Americans, and I'm thinking many Americans have for Saudis if you get to know them. And I think this is the, the, the Saudis have liked Americans, and this is really broad brush stuff. Um, tend to be you know, tend to be pretty open, tend to laugh. Um, you know, are very strong in terms of family. And it's funny when you, when you look at the early, early American, Americans, business people and other things that uh, went to Saudi Arabia, they're from the oil patch. And so South, very strong family affiliations. Obviously that's, that resonates with Saudis. Um, the other thing is, is Saudi Arabia is, you know, the U.S. when we, when, when the United States was founded, um, Pretty much everybody in Europe looked down upon us as sort of uh, unsophisticated, uncivilized newbies. Um, we were seen as kind of rubes. And, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, the Gulf oil states, seen the same way. I mean, they, you know, the, these, these ancient civilizations uh, in Egypt and Syria, Mesopotamia, Iraq, Iran, you know, and, and they see these upstarts, these unsophisticated, you know, Bedouin, you know, camel, camel drivers and desert dwellers uh, rise and start creating, a, a, you know, cities and have a global political influence. And people look down on them, same as, same as Europeans look down on us. And I'm not, I'm just saying there's, there's interesting parallels. We could go off on a tangent on that. Uh, but, you know, in terms of pride in their country, it is palpable. Uh, just like Americans have pride in their country. There are similarities. It's, it's always interesting to think about how um, a few of my friends from the UK think of America. They're just like, so you guys are like, you guys speak English, but you have guns and you can just kind of do whatever you want. And it's so big. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's, it's funny to think about America as like formerly a, in many areas, a British colony. And now the differences are very huge. They're obviously one of our biggest allies in the world, but it's just very, very and, interesting and you, to think about. You're, you're, you know, your historical sites are 300 years old. I mean, yeah, get real. Yeah. The oldest building <laughs> is 1670 instead of, yeah. you know, 430. You know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty significant. Well, look at our Roman aqueduct. Oh, we got a target. <laughs> <laughs> we have two targets in this town. <laughs> exactly. Um, but that, it's, a, it's an interesting story for, for Saudis, and, and certainly you would echo this. They are the most hospitable people in the entire world. It's just <laughs> honestly hard to argue that. So uh, very interesting, and it'll be interesting to see if this expands over time and, and they become more like Spain or France where, like, you know, it, it takes a decade to become a citizen, but if you come and work and put in the time and contribute, you can become a citizen. So it'll be interesting to see if that actually goes down there. Yeah, it's a start. They got a long way to go. Indeed. Topic three, my favorite topic, mega developments. Two two new mega development plans this week. Um, Richard, it is only Thursday evening, so we still may have one or two more mega projects <laughs> yes, exactly. left to announce this week. <laughs> Check but, your Twitter. Um, 
um, there are two. Let's first start near the capital Riyadh, where Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is planning an eponymous new city called, drumroll, the Prince Mohammed bin Salman Nonprofit City, which will be built on a 3.4 square kilometer, that's 1.3 square miles of uh, land that the Crown Prince donated. Um, this city is essentially set up so that um, uh, nonprofits, education, um, even actually venture capital firms, people working in the in the space um, will be located just outside of Riyadh. It's kind of a cool um, it's kind of a cool design if you look online. We'll actually share it. It's, it's on our website sustg.com, but we'll we'll share it in this video and on the podcast website as well. Um, very interesting. That was announced earlier this week. And the second is Oxagon. Is it's Oxygen? Oxygen. I think it's supposed to sound like oxygen. So okay. Would, so oxygen. It sounds like oxygen. <laughs> um, when, they, when when you know on the promo video. Okay. So oxygen. Um, which I really really check out our listeners and viewers to go and we'll put it. We're actually going to throw it on the screen right now. Um, but. It's going to be the world's largest floating industrial floating industrial complex, uh, sort of in the shape of an oxygon, uh, and it'll be located just outside of Neom, which itself is a planned megacity. Um, Neom did not say how much the city would cost or how the complex would be engineered to float, but you should see this thing. A, a graphic rendering makes it look like um, sort of like the the Death Star if it were flat, but on the water. It's all an industry, so it's really cool looking actually um oxygen will feature a support and a logistics hub um and it will be a comprehensive cognitive city focused on robotics and ai richard you love mega developments like this don't you well i do actually i just have some thoughts on this one <laughs> uh, and uh well before we get there let's go back to the uh the nonprofit city. Serious question. Can you tell me what a nonprofit city is? It's a city that doesn't make any money. <laughs> that's, that's, no, no, that's, that's, that's what we are. That's what we are. <laughs> um, I don't know what a nonprofit city is, but I do know that this is the first nonprofit city ever. Well, it was so. a big announcement. <laughs> and I think, you know, uh, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has, has uh, this fully evolved uh, MISC Foundation, which uh, is very deeply, you know, it does a lot of things on innovation and entrepreneurship and young youth. It's, and it's been established and it is active and it's done a lot of good work. I think, I think this is sort of where, essentially where you're, they're gonna house MISC. Um, so maybe it's the physical mm -hmm. embodiment of the foundation. Um, but I don't know, again, I, I, I have, I don't know anything about how a nonprofit city might work. So that, you know, so <laughs> so, so. neither both of us are in the dark sort of, but I, I you know, I, I understand, I, I guess I understand the motivation. I'm not sure why it, you know, it has to be localized in a nonprofit city, but I'm not an expert on this. Yeah. It's um, interesting that it will be just outside the capital. I mean, I guess the way to do to, to, I mean, it, it's interesting. They're doing a separate built development for this instead of being like, Hey, this like district in Riyadh, we're going to revitalize this. And this is where we're going to have MISC. But um, I mean, MBS really cares about MISC. Like he, it's it's consistent he since he has ascended to power. Um, and that MISC is his charity um, that has an annual conference. They do a lot of work in Saudi Arabia. They do a lot of good work too. Um, so um, he's very proud of that. And um, you're right. I think this is where MISC will be located. Um, 
I, I don't know where uh, this will be MBS City in relation to Kitia or any of these other planned, I guess Kitia is now under development, but some of these other neighborhoods outside of Riyadh, they're also developing, but th it is interesting. Um, I mean, it is the first nonprofit city, so. <laughs> All right, so so uh, so on this, this Oxygen, all right, so I'm going to go full grump. Let's go. Let's grump it out. Full grump on this. First, before I go full grump, though, let's. I think we need to have a common vocabulary, and we need to understand what these giga projects are. Now, this is again, this is giga projects that you know, multi-billion-dollar investment strategies and uh, structure, you know, construction, and and really ambitious things. So let let's let's enumerate the Saudi giga projects, and I and I break them into two categories. And maybe this would help you understand. So I, the first category is greenfield projects. So giga projects. So greenfield, so blank slate. So this would be, for example, the Red Sea Development Company, which is building a, a, a luxury tourism venue, a northwestern Red Sea coast, a huge 34,000 square kilometers, 50 hotels, nine islands. So this is, this is a huge, huge giga project right up the coast is amala which is a ultra luxury tourism site uh and you could say and so it the both of these are actually progressing and now in just in september these two projects were put under one operating body so so now these two very large luxury and ultra luxury tourism projects on the red sea are, are controlled by the same authority but those are two of the giga projects, greenfield projects, because there's nothing there. Um, then the, another greenfield of the of the gigas is Neom, of course, everyone knows about five hundred billion dollar mega city of the future, Vision twenty thirty flagship project, mm -hmm. you know, hub for innovation, sustainable ecosystem. It's it's gotten a lot of press. Greenfield. There are some there's there's some people up there, but there's really nothing up there. Cadia, uh, which we mentioned, which is another, you know, this is $8 billion commitment. It'll be more than that. This is essentially uh, an entertainment sports city southwest of Riyadh. Six Flags is committed to be there. They'll have an F1 Formula One racetrack. They'll have uh, golf courses. It'll Couple be golf courses. Yep. Huge entertainment thing. So uh, again, nothing there. Greenfield. Uh, and so then let's look at others where, where, uh, there may be the urban uh, urban growth projects, huge construction projects in existing cities or existing locales. So one is Daria, Adria, which we've been to, which is gorgeous. Awesome. That's a seventeen billion dollar development. So Daria, those of you who listen to us, Daria was the, was the capital of the first Saudi state from seventeen forty four to eighteen eleven. Uh, second Saudi state had the capital in modern-day Riyadh, the, the kernel of modern-day Riyadh. So Daria is an ancient site. It's a heritage site, UNESCO heritage site. So that, that's, a, that's a huge project, and it's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. um, Jebel Omar, this is a huge Mecca development within Mecca. Uh, we're talking, you know, four, four to five billion dollars, and it's um, uh, hotels, residential buildings, that sort of thing, but it's intended it's intended to try and translate these, you know, two to three million uh, pilgrims that come every year for Hajj and Umrah into having them stay for a while. Uh, that's good business. Uh, and that's, you know, it jives, you know, very closely with their efforts to increase tourism. 
King Salman Park, four times the size of it's in Riyadh, um, four times the size of New York City's Central Park, another huge billion dollar investment. Important because it's a, it's a quality of life thing, which is a, which a major tenant of Vision 2030. Riyadh Metro, which we know is, is getting close to, to starting, that's a $23 billion investment. And that's coming to fruition shortly. Uh, the Asir development, you know, they committed 13 billion to the, the south uh, southwest part of the country, mountainous, you know, as again, as a both cultural and heritage, but also travel and tourism. Then you've got the Jetta Metro, which is coming, the Mecca public transport program. So these are all, I call those, those aren't green fields, those, but those are, those are urban expansion or, um, you know, huge improvements and construction projects on, on existing sites. So how many was that? So these, let's call all these gigas. Um, that's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just ran down a list. I don't even know the numbers. I mean, uh, the, you know, typically they say there's six giga projects, but there's more than that when you really, you know, pot them up. Um, and this is really impressive with, with billions, trillions of dollars committed to accomplishing these giga projects. And I understand, especially in the greenfield projects, when you, in today's world, so here's today's uh, public relations environment, you know, what, what do you, you know, ESG is uh, pervasive, environmental, social, and governance. You know, we're world, living in a world where everyone talks about the fourth industrial revolution. So, you know, we're talking about uh, emerging technology breakthroughs and AI, robotics, internet of things, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, nanotechnology, I mean, material science, quantum computing. So this is fourth industrial revolution. These are all, this is what, this is the world that these giga projects are entering. And then you have the global energy conversion. So I get, I get the hyperbolic, you know, all these things, you know, the announcements on all this stuff and the ambition of them. And I think, especially with the green field and actually all these green, all these giga projects that I, I mentioned, they make good sense. Neom, Neom is tremendously ambitious. And, but you know, if you're going to do this and you have a blank slate and you should be ambitious and, and, you know, and, and maybe they'll accomplish what they want in Neom. Maybe they'll get 50%, whatever it is, it's going to be, it, it'll be something, but, but what the heck go for it. And again, mm -hmm. in this environment of the fourth IR and ESG, you know, you, you've got to couch it in certain teams and why not aspire to these things? Um, I think this is enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm saying, I'm saying this is this is truly impressive, and let's get this right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you, we don't need, uh, you know, uh, oxygen. Uh, you know, there was a snarky comment from some Twitter, some Twitter guy, and it's what he says: "Congratulations to whichever consulting firm got paid a large sum of money to come up with this pie in the sky idea." Neom didn't say how much the city would cost or how the complex would be engineered to float. All right. Most, you know, most everything Saudi Arabia does, you know, brings out snark from commenters all over the world who, who are, you know, predisposed one way or another. But, you know, Oxygen's cool, but I mean, all these, these giga projects are amazing in and of themselves. I don't, I don't think we need to have exclamation point, you know, another thing announced i'm 
I'm I'm Midwestern to the core. My dad's from Missouri. My mom's from North Dakota. You know, so show me state. I don't think it would hurt Saudi Arabia to to underpromise and overproduce uh, on occasion. Uh, they've become very good though at the glitzy PR announcement. That's just not how they do it, though. Um, we should mention though that um, major cities are like new cities built from, like you say, greenfields, but just built from nothing. That's sort of been going on for a little while. I mean, you before the King Solomon era, you had, you know, the King Abdullah economic city. Um, you had all of these planned economic cities, actually, several of them. I don't know if they ended up getting built or being scaled back significantly, but King Abdullah economic city um, was at least one of the first that I'm familiar with. And um, Richard, do you know if they like if they built it to exactly their ambition or if they scaled it back or I mean, because obviously they have a major golf tournament there. I mean, KAEC exists, but, um, you know, the, the, the Giga project isn't a new phenomenon, I guess, is my point. No, and that's a good point. That King Abdullah financial district got hit uh was very ambitious it's amazing it's just amazing it's pretty it's very impressive um well sorry got, i was it, actually talking about the kaec but the financial oh, district oh, is oh. another one yeah so uh, sorry so to interrupt KAC, you, yeah. actually they tried to kaec they tried to move into a private private uh, ownership and it's languished mm. considerably i think they're trying to revive it but it's languished it really hasn't there, there are people there are companies that set up business there but it's not anything like they had hoped but it doesn't mean that the plant's not there and the facility's not there and, and, and it can't be repurposed, like the KAFD, the King of Dollar Financial District, which is being repurposed as a, as a um, tax rezone and uh, you know, a, a center for finance and, and other companies that want to come in a specific tax rezone right in the middle of Riyadh. And, you know, and the, the King of Dollar Financial District was hit by the downturn in 2014, 2015, when they, you know, as I said, their, their revenues halved. Uh, so everything sort of came to a halt. And also, to be honest, um, you know, again, so oh, here we go. So that was was uh, proposed and hailed as having the the equivalent uh, resident business office space of Miami. Uh, right in that heart of, of, of Riyadh. And it was just over overshot. And also, obviously, when when revenues plummeted, uh, they had to they had to reposition themselves, which is is only smart. You can't really ping them for that. But they are now they're, they're going to finish it up, and they're they're going to make it um, a uh, free trade zone, which is great. Good job. Uh, you know you know you have to adjust on these things, and and on all these giga projects, you have to adjust as you go along. Which is like I said, I don't think it would hurt them to you know under promise and over over overperform um on these things because these these are these things are ambitious enough they're just mm -hmm. extraordinarily ambitious i don't know where oxygen fits in it oxygen is that right oxygen oxygen uh, hey, you uh, told me uh, i was saying oxygen <laughs> well i was i said oxygen but the oxygen uh but neom's ambitious enough we don't need another big gig up you know, announcement that's not going to happen or isn't fully, fully, um, you know, it hasn't been substantiated or, or all the details run down. Uh, let's, let's get these other giga projects going. Some of them are well on their way, like the Riyadh Metro. Kadia started, Red Sea is started. There's construction in Neon. 
uh, Jebel Omar is, is, is huge. Adderi is amazing. You know, King Salman Park is going to be amazing. It, you know, th this is, these are all things that will contribute to, to the uh, Vision 2030 and to the uh, Saudi country, you know, populace and the economy going forward. It's impressive enough. Let's not just throw out stuff that's, uh, you know, that's really pretty to see. Yes, and again, like I said, that's full grump on the oxygen. And I, you know, uh, like I said, there's uh, other things are really interesting and, and moving along, but the oxygen sort of brought out the Grinch in me. We need the grump and it's almost Christmas. So the Grinch is coming out. So <laughs> that's true. That's um, true. One thing that's interesting about Neom, um, I guess it's probably the last thing I'll say about it. But when I talk to Saudis about it, they, um, they gloss over the, you know, future AI city and robotics and like, you know, automated transport. And they sort of just put that aside and say, Lucian, you got to see the site they're building this thing on. It is right on the sea. It is completely yeah. beautiful. It's close to Sharm El Sheikh. Um, it's just completely untouched. And it's interesting because that that's sort of their view. They're like very proud, not just of what Neom could be or, or anything like that. They're just proud that that land is Saudi. They're like, this is so beautiful. The water is turquoise. So, yeah. um, and it should be, and, and you're like a mile on Red Sea, the Red Sea development, you know, they're on that, that gorgeous coast with that gorgeous Red Sea water. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's smart. You know, these are, these are things that, that will attract tourism and, and Neom itself might, you know, be a transformative center for technology and, and a new way of living. We don't know, but I understand the aspirations and uh, let's go get them and make them come to, come to life. And maybe, you know, well down the road when it's fully vetted and fully thought out, let's talk about an oxygen. I think that'll do it this week. We'll pick up the grumpiness next week. Um, and no, let's, again, let's try it. Let's try and limit it to just this one. <laughs> um, again, if you could smash the like button or the subscribe button where you're viewing this or, or listening to this, that helps us a lot. Uh, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian.